Uh, do you have any good traditions in your family, in, in your church, uh, at your work? Any traditions that you really enjoy? Tell me about them. Birthday cake, yeah, isn't that interesting? You wouldn't think birthday cake is a tradition, but of course it is. Yeah, Mary. Ah, uh, Tom making Sunday morning waffles. So are we invited next week? <laughs> He's made them for the men's group before, so they are great. What else? What are some other traditions that we have? Christmas. Christmas. That's right. Yeah, all those things. You ever uh, wonder why we do all those things at Christmas that we do? It's mostly because Queen Victoria married Albert uh, from Germany, and he brought the German traditions over, and uh, we, of course, uh, like the British, so we adopted them too. What else? Thanksgiving? Yeah, what about, is it the football or the food or uh, the food coma afterward? All of it. Okay, yeah, that's, that's good stuff. Yeah, we got lots of traditions. Traditions can be really wonderful things, can't they? Do you have any traditions that you've changed? a tradition you've changed. Maybe you got married and things were different. Yeah, Nancy? We got tired of eating turkey at Thanksgiving, so we went to Primary. Yeah. Wow. Sacrilegious, but good. So, yeah. Yeah. Changed your food. What else? Any other traditions you've changed? We started celebrating the 12 days of Christmas all That's right. days with the kids. Yeah, we kind of added a tradition. Yeah. Right? You changed, you know, not celebrating to celebrating. We do the 12 days of Christmas. Uh, which is fun, and Twelfth uh, Night, where we have that special cake and all sorts of things. It's a lot of fun. What happens when you change a tradition? How do people usually feel about that? Yeah, people really love it when you do that, don't they? It's like, this year, instead of turkey, we're going to have prime ribs. Somebody was like, there's something horribly wrong with you, and we're going to call the police and make this stop. Anyway, it's hard. I mean, we get used to these traditions. We get comfortable in these traditions. Now, there's a lot that's good about traditions because traditions help us to remember certain things and help us to experience certain things consistently over the course of the year, over a course of our lifetime. Traditions bring a lot of value, but sometimes... Sometimes the world that we live in or the new uh, circumstances we find ourselves in or something else is, you know what, you really need to change that tradition for one reason or another. Everyone hates turkey, so no one likes Thanksgiving. I'm not saying this is you. Just this is obviously what happened in the Gordon and Clausen household. So we don't want to do this anymore. Let's have something amazing like prime rib, right? It's not working anymore. Let's do something different. Even when you get to those points, though, it's not working anymore. Let's do something different. There's still resistance, isn't there? Oh, traditions, once they get set, they are so hard to change. I want you to keep that in mind this morning. Now, let me take you through a couple of pictures here. So can we advance the slide, slide turner? You didn't know I was going to do this to you. I'm going to keep you on your toes all morning long. So uh, you remember this map from last time we were in the book of Acts? Uh, Paul has just begun his first missionary journey with Barnabas. And their first trip, they left uh, on the right side here. You see uh, uh, the Middle East on the right, Syria, uh, 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 Lebanon, uh, and then Israel right down here 
at the bottom. And Paul was all the way up in Antioch, right at the, the northeastern corner of the Mediterranean Sea there. And he and Barnabas set sail. They went to Cyprus. They spent some time there. They went through the whole island telling people about Jesus. And after that, they uh, left Cyprus. They landed at Perga, which is in modern-day Turkey, pretty central in Turkey. Well, we're getting actually toward the western coast of Turkey. And then they traveled north to Antioch, which is funny because they left Antioch and they're in Antioch again, but it's a different Antioch because Antioch was the family name of the rulers of the Seleucid Empire, and uh, they named tons of cities after themselves. Like, you know, what should we name this city, Mr. Emperor? Uh, Antioch sounds great. Let's do that again. Like, we already got four of those. That's okay. We can always use another Antioch. But you'll notice that the region of ancient Turkey that they were in, ancient Asia Minor, was uh, called Pisidia. So this is, we differentiate this by calling it Pisidian Antioch. And you'll also notice that uh, they're going to travel to Iconium and Derby, and then they're going to turn around and mostly go back the way that they came. So they're on a journey to tell people about Jesus. Let's go to the next slide. This is Pisidian Antioch. Uh, this is actually the ruins of a temple in Pisidian Antioch. I was actually in Pisidian Antioch uh, 12-ish years ago, uh, 11 years ago. And this is the group that I was with. You can't see me in this picture. You'll see the younger me very shortly. Don't you worry. Uh, but Pisidian Antioch was a Roman colony, which means around 25 BC, the Emperor Augustus said, I need a place to house my retired troops. And he found this declining city, Pisidian Antioch, and he said, that's a new Roman colony. He sent retired legionaries there, and it became the most Roman city in all of modern-day Turkey, what was then ancient Galatia, Pisidia, lots of other sorts of places. Most Roman city out there. And because they were the most Roman city, do you know who they loved to worship? The emperor. Loved worshiping the emperor. I don't know if this was a, a temple for emperor worship, but it was a temple for some sort of worship. Let's go to the next slide. Uh, this is a Roman bath, and I gave it to you just because I'm pretending to wash. So this is before I had the beard. That's all you need to know. Next slide. Finally, this is what it looks like uh, from Pisidian Antioch. This was uh, from the upper part of the city where all the most important buildings would have been. Obviously, we're just looking in one direction. It's not a panorama, but you can see these, these spectacular mountains over there. We were there in January, so it was quite cold, and uh, there was snow up there. But it was surrounded by, there was a river nearby, surrounded by a fertile plain. This is the sort of place, it was a destination city in the ancient world. People loved to go there. Uh, it was one of the most beautiful cities in the region uh, because of its connection to Rome and because of how much people loved Rome. And this is where Paul arrives, and he wants to share the gospel. And I think he must have been thinking as he arrived, how are we going to do this? Because the Romans are the ones who put Jesus to death. So if we come proclaiming a crucified Messiah to the Romans, to the people who have served in Rome's armies, to the people who, if they had been in Palestine, would have been responsible for putting Jesus to death, what kind of reception are we going to get? So Paul and Barnabas do what was always their practice. They start in the Jewish synagogue. They think, surely we'll get a sympathetic hearing at the Jewish synagogue because we're Jews, Jesus was a Jew, Jesus is the fulfillment of all that we've hoped for as Jews. And that's what we find when 
Paul starts to preach. By the way, this passage we're going to be in this morning is 40 verses long. I didn't make Kelly read all of it because I like Kelly and I want her to continue volunteering to do stuff. But in these 40 verses, Paul gives a long sermon. And you heard the first bit where he says that all of these, God kept doing these things for our people, and it was all leading up to Jesus. He delivered us you know, from Egypt. He made us powerful in Egypt. He gave us a land. He gave us kings. And then King David came along, and God said, there is a king coming out of David's line who will be your savior, and I want to tell you about that king. And that's what he starts to do. Okay, let me see if I can find the rest of my notes. I've got too much on my tray here. I'm sorry. There we go. Paul starts out by telling him Jesus is the fulfillment of all of our hopes and dreams as Jews. He goes through, as I said, he tells him about Egypt, and he tells them about the land, and he tells them about King David, and uh, then he makes it very specific. He says, uh, all this took about 450 years. God gave him judges. They asked for a king, and from this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. God, just like the prophet Isaiah said would happen. And as John completed his work, he says, it's not me, fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles. It is to us that the message of salvation has been sent. I'm in this Roman city. We don't know how they're going to respond. But good news, all that you've longed for, all that you've hoped, it's about to come true. It's already come true in Jesus Christ. And, you know, Paul... Paul, in some sense, he's already ministered to Jews. He, didn't, he knows that not everyone buys the message. But there must be a sense in Paul's heart in which he's waiting for everyone to leap out of their seats and say, we can't believe it. We're so excited that God has finally made good on his promises. And do you know what happened when Paul gave this message? Well, some of it was good. Some people said, wow, we want to hear about this again next week. This is good news. And then what happens is during the week, the city starts to buzz, especially all of the synagogues, not just made up of the Jews by blood. It's made up of the Jew admirers as well, the, the Gentiles who want something to do with the Jewish God, but who themselves are not physically, not culturally, not legally Jews. They just admire the God of the Jews. We often call them God-fearers. And the, it starts to go around the city and starts to buzz. And people start to talk and they start to say, wow, there is a God that has come to make this world better, to save us from all the things that are going badly, that are wrong in the world. And the more the buzz goes on, the more some of the Jews start to say, we don't like where this is going. As a matter of fact, we read that they become jealous, it says in the NIV. Uh, it says on the next Sabbath, in verse 44, almost the whole city, can you imagine? they're wondering what kind of response are we going to get in Pisidian Antioch, and the whole city comes to hear about Jesus. 
And when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy, and they began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. What's that about? This word jealousy, I think the NIV does this a little bit of a disservice because the word that's translated jealousy here means something along the lines of zealous. The Jews became zealous. And that's a little bit of a different connotation from jealousy, isn't it? It includes jealousy in its range of meaning, but there's more. The Jews became zealous. And I think that Luke is trying to point us to two different things. He's trying to say, yes, they were jealous. They were saying, everyone's going over to them. We've lived here forever, and we've only got a few Gentiles. Paul comes, and the next week, the whole of the city comes to him. There is a little bit of jealousy. But I think that there is also this sense, because again, it's not just jealousy, it's zealous. What were they zealous for? What does it mean to be full of zeal? Someone shouted out. What do you think? What does it mean to, to be zealous about something? Yeah, be excited. What else? Passionate. That's a great word for it. Be passionate. What were they excited? What were the Jews excited and passionate about? Well, just go back to Jerusalem. Right? Remember, didn't Jesus argue all the time with the Jewish leaders, with the, the priests and the Pharisees and everyone else? What do they argue about? Their traditions. Oh, we've come full circle. Look at that. That's amazing. They argued about their traditions. What, what kind of tradi- traditions about the Sabbath? How do we keep the Sabbath? Remember Jesus? He wants to heal somebody on the Sabbath. And the religious leaders, they're watching like hawks because that's against their tradition. You don't do that on the Sabbath. Of course, Jesus says, hey, if your animal falls down a well on the Sabbath, aren't you going to pull it out? You think it's wrong for me to heal? What's wrong with your traditions? Something's gone badly wrong. He has all these other debates. He, they talk about food that's clean or unclean. You know, the disciples are walking through a field and they're, they're starving. They've been working hard. They start picking ears of grain again on the Sabbath. And, and uh, the, the religious leaders are like, they're, they're doing this. They're not supposed to do this on the Sabbath. That's against the traditions. Not only this, but they're doing it without washing their hands. And you know, I think it's a good idea to wash your hands. So don't think I'm saying, please don't wash your hands. Jesus doesn't want you to wash your hands. No, no, no. It's not what we're doing here today. No, it's, they say, this is the tradition of the elders. It says we we gotta wash our hands so that we will stay ritually clean while we eat. And Jesus is like, are you kidding me? You think it's what goes into you that makes you unclean? What about what comes out of you? You care more about washing your hands than about, you know, being cruel. Something's gone terribly wrong. And you know what it reveals? It reveals that we never really understood the law in the first place. Never really understood the law in the first place. Isn't it so easy for us? This is a common human fit. This isn't like they're Jews. They don't get laws. No, no, no. It's not about them. It's about human beings. What happens when we have rules? Okay? Uh, And uh, how do we feel when we keep them? How do we feel when we break them? Tell me about this. It's very interactive today. You feel yeah. You feel good when you keep them. You feel shame when you break them. Right? Not always. Sometimes we reverse it. Right? We feel good when we break them, and we feel ashamed when we keep them. But either way, 
what's, what's in charge of our life, if that's true? If we feel good when we keep the law and we feel ashamed when we break the law, and the opposite too, if we feel ashamed to keep the law but good about breaking it, what's the boss of our lives? The law. The law is telling us how to feel and how to be all the time. The law becomes the thing that we must answer to. But that's not what God intended the law for. He didn't. Do you know what the word that we often translate as law means in Hebrew? It's, it's Torah. That's the Hebrew word. Do you know what it means? It means wisdom. Wisdom. The law is God's wisdom for our lives. And doesn't that totally change? Now, instead of being accountable to the law, like, ah, if I break the law, I'm going to feel so terrible. You know, instead, if we break the law, we'll say, well, bad things happen, and that makes sense because the law is wise, and what I did by breaking it was not wise. See, now the law is no longer our master, our God. And that's what the Jews were doing. That's what we do, too. We say, the law is my God. If I break it, I'm bad. If I keep it, I'm good. But is that how God makes his determination about his people? Did God say, if you keep the law, then you can go to heaven when you die, and if you break the law, then to hell with you? Literally. Is that what he said? No. No. God said, I'm going to give you this law, wisdom for living. You need to keep it. But not because you're answerable to the law, because you're answerable to me. And then he, he makes it even more clear. If we go to uh, Galatians chapter 3, verses 24 to 25. Galatians chapter 3, verses 24 to 25. Here's what it says. It says, before the coming of this faith, before we got to know about Jesus, we were held in custody under the law, locked up till the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. The law was our guardian. It has this idea of, in the ancient world, if you had children and you were a little you know, well off, you might hire a tutor who does a lot of the raising of your children. And the job of the tutor is to help you become ready to step into your role as a full member of the family with rights and power over the household. And God's saying that's what the law was supposed to be to us. It was our temporary keeper. It wasn't meant to be, this is exactly who I want you to be for all time, although it does point to that, doesn't it? It teaches us what it means to be holy. The law wasn't supposed to uh, make us right before God, like, oh, you know, my job, if I just keep all these laws, then God will finally be happy with me. Because the Bible says, you know, Paul says, and again in Galatians, no one will be justified by keeping the law, because no one can do it. And so the law instead is our guardian. Some, some translations say the law was our tutor which is both good and bad, to lead us to Christ. But it does have this sense of it keeps us prepared for the coming of Christ. And then when Christ comes, that tutor is gone. It's done its job. It's taken us to Jesus. And this is the message that Paul is giving to those folks in Acts. And you know, in I should say, in Pisidian Antioch. And you know what? The Gentiles were so excited to receive this. And the Jews were not. And it was because the Jews loved their tradition. They didn't understand the purpose of the law. 
They didn't really understand what God had been telling them. And Paul, he says the same thing here in Acts chapter 13. This isn't my judgment. This is what Luke tells us Paul judged these folks to be going through. You never really understood the law. And now, now when Jesus has come, as a result, you can't recognize him. And folks, I want to tell you, we are in the same sort of danger today when we elevate our traditions without understanding. Ever do that? The last thing I ever want to hear anyone say in this church is we do it because that's the way we've always done it. We do lots of things that we have always done here, and they are good, but they are not good because we always have done them that way. Does that make sense? That can be a hard thing to hear. And that's okay. Things are not good just because they're old. If you think that, I have a lot of old stuff that I'd like to sell you for a premium later. (laughs) Things are good because of what they are. And good things tend to last. Age can point us toward goodness, but it's not the guarantee of goodness. We don't do things just because we've always done them. We say, well, why did we start doing them in the first place? We seek to understand. And then we say, so do we keep on doing? Or has something changed? And do we need to do something differently? When I first came to the church, uh, I think we had, we had five elders. And the, uh, the reason, part of the reason we had five elders was because that was just the size of the church. We couldn't have any more. We, but having five elders wasn't the good gold standard of elderdom, right, of, of how the church should be run. It was just the appropriate thing for the time that we lived in. Now we have six elders. doesn't make us better or worse. It's just the right thing for the time and the place we find ourselves, guided by God. See, zeal without understanding will lead us to error. And how important is that message today? Let me give you one example because we're, we're running late. But we talked this morning about our Hot Topics class. Right? So we want to know how to confront these different issues that are out there today. Which is easier to have an opinion or to know what you're talking about? Have an opinion. Which do we sometimes do without the other? Right? Sometimes we have an opinion without knowing what we're talking about. And what happens when we get into conversation with people when we have an opinion and we don't know what we're talking about? How quickly are we going to be found out? Will that be a pleasant experience for us? Will that help people to think better of Christians when we have opinions and don't know what we're talking about? And let me tell you something, folks. The things that we believe as a church, we have good reasons for believing them. But we'll never do them right until we understand why. Until we start thinking carefully about it. Why do we do things the way that we do it? Why do we do communion earlier in the service than most churches do? Is that good or is that bad? Is that obedient to scripture or is it not? Why do we have a sermon that, yes, some of you have told me before and continues to be true, takes up most of the time in the service? Why do we do this? You want to know, I can tell you exactly why. It's part of our tradition, part of our convictions regarding the value of God's word. It takes the center place in all that we do. 
doesn't mean it has to be 50 minutes or 20 minutes or whatever in between, but it is the point of focus. Why do we do these things? That's an invitation. It is not a condemnation. If you're sitting here thinking, oh, no, I don't know why we do anything that we do here, you know, and I feel terrible about that, no, don't do that. That's, that's the last thing I want you to do this morning. What I want you to do is start asking questions. And you should start with your Bible, and you can move however quickly you need to to the leadership of the church. Okay, because the Bible is the book with the answers that the leadership of the church is accountable to. And the leadership of the church is also here to help you understand your Bible. And part of my guarantee to you as your pastor, and part of what we are going to train our elders to do as well, is to know how to honestly look into the scriptures and say, what does the Bible say? Instead of, how do I support what I want to do? This is, I think, what Luke is telling us, is that we ta- as we take the gospel, the Bible is telling us, as we take the gospel out into the world, sometimes the people we least expect are going to be the people who, strong, uh, who respond most favorably. And sometimes the people we most expect to respond favorably will find are stuck with things because they were easy or comfortable or familiar. So let me end on this. How comfortable do you recall the 12 disciples being with Jesus? Was every day like, oh, it just gets better and better? You know, Jesus just keeps telling us everything that we've always wished somebody would tell us. Do they keep saying, like, Jesus every day? He, he just, like, and don't we talk about Jesus this way in our culture? It's just like he picks me up and he rocks me. He just loves me. And he does love us. But is that your experience of Jesus' love all the time? Is that the disciples' experience? Jesus said some pretty tough stuff to him. Uh, you know, Peter, the one that he said, you're, like, going to be the leader of the disciples. You're kind of going to be the most famous of all the disciples. Uh, at one point, he said, well, get behind me, Satan. Like, does that sound like the Jesus that sometimes we worship? I'm just going to tell you good things about yourself. You just go right to sleep. I'll stroke your hair. So you go. It's not that Jesus doesn't relate to us in those ways. It's that that's not the only way that Jesus relates to us. And he does it specifically because he loves us. If you're a parent, you know something about that, don't you? Your children. Sometimes we try not to get too angry because our anger takes us places we don't want to go. But if our children never see us angry, they're not seeing the whole truth. Because sometimes the things that we do, they, they're not good. I have four children. And you know what the hardest thing is? When they fight with each other, get angry with each other, and they hurt each other. And that's a moment where it's appropriate for my children to see I'm angry. Because that's part of what means I love you and people don't get to do this to you. People who think God never gets angry have never been hurt very much, have they? People who say that God is not a God who ever judges, that's not the God I believe, and he sounds mean. They've lived pretty sheltered lives. Luke wants us to know that as we go out into the world, people will respond in different ways to the message. 
And it's not because the message is true or false, as if popular opinion was the thing that was most important. It's because the message actually starts to cut to the heart of who and what we are and reveal our neediness, how deeply we are loved. And then it asks us to change. Not on our own, with the help of the Holy Spirit, but if we are fat and happy, that call to change is a hard one to get.